For season four of No Gray Zone, Melissa Hotmeyer is on sabbatical. She has started an amazing new career opportunity that we hope to be able to share with you soon. No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. In recognition of Human Trafficking Awareness Month, I am thrilled to have Detective Joseph Scaramucci with the McLennan County Sheriff's Office on the show. Joe's an internationally recognized human trafficking expert. He's participated in hundreds of stings. He's been requested to lend his expertise all over the country, such as Super Bowls, which is traditionally a prime time for prostitution and sex trafficking. He's also trained federal, state, and local officers in at least 40 states now, I believe, as well as the U.S. Army, Marines, and Department of Defense agents. I myself have been fortunate enough to have Joe work with my state's human trafficking task force and attend his training. In addition to training in the U.S., Joe's also traveled to Mongolia to train investigators there and conducted trainings for officers in Nigeria, Australia, and Peru. He's been featured on numerous news programs as well as the Dr. Phil Show and is just an overall great human. So, Joe, welcome to No Gray Zone. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I am thrilled to have you here today, and I am hoping that with your experience and expertise, we can shine a little light on human trafficking and especially on some of the misconceptions surrounding trafficking. We have all seen movies like Taken, and we've seen headlines where dozens or even hundreds of survivors have been rescued. And we've heard pundits talk about trucks filled with trafficking victims being smuggled across the border. But can you give us the realistic scope of trafficking, especially as it applies to sex trafficking in this country? Yeah, it's definitely not those things, right? Like it, it, probably happens from time to time, but it's a fraction. I I think the biggest thing is when we look at what sex trafficking looks like within the U.S., we have to remember a few different things. The biggest is that when we talk about victims of trafficking and, and survivors, there's something that places them at risk, right? There's some vulnerability that's leading to it. And, and vulnerability is such a, a broad stroke. It could be something as, you know, like self-esteem issues where they don't feel they're pretty enough or they're not skinny enough, or it could be financial vulnerabilities that they're, you know, unable to, you know, have parents that provide for them if, if they're children or as adults, unable to provide for their children. It could be obviously drug abuse or something like that. So It's really looking at what vulnerability led them to that position. And then what, to me, I I guess the next step is what were their options, right? So people like to say, well, they always had the choice. There's choice. But if you have extremely limited choice, 
it's not really a choice. You know, it, 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 when we limit ourselves to very, very small things. So, you know, I like to tell people Harvard graduates that are making $500,000 a year are not generally out being trafficked. So what it looks like is people with, you know, with vulnerability. And then when the trafficker comes in, you know, they're the white knight who's going to come in and pull the shirt off and have the Superman underneath it. And all they're doing is exploring those vulnerabilities and finding a way to exploit it. And once that actually happens, then, you know, we, we look at, at trafficking. When we look at the scope, I think numbers are hard to come by. It's, it's difficult to put a number to a crime that's hidden, right? We, we don't try to say this amount of people smoke marijuana on any given day, but we try to quantify this. So that part I think is really hard. I do think that there's some decent numbers out there that at least show when we have come across victims of trafficking, you know, what those demographics are. And I think by and large women of color are, you know, statistically trafficked higher more than Caucasian women, but that's not to say that Caucasian women aren't trafficked. I think the FBI had done a study that uh, said that 40% of, again, all the trafficking victims that were interacted with were African-American. And then when we start looking at Hispanic and Latina and all that, I mean, we start adding to that number. So very broad strokes when it comes to what it looks like and what the actual scope is. And I think the reality is, is the answer, the short answer to what is the scope is we just don't know. And I think that's really important to recognize. I think there were two things that you said, right? It's a hidden crime. Mm -hmm. So what we see is really just kind of the tip of the iceberg and that it really is a crime that preys on vulnerabilities. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's also, we know probably what, in the last decade or so, it's a crime that's received a lot of media attention Yeah, and it's become a lot of buzzwords. Yeah. What's the main thing you think the media gets wrong when they cover human trafficking? That's tough because I, I, you know, obviously being in law enforcement, I'm all about law enforcement accountability. And I think that in many ways we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So we live in a world where clicks matter, right? We, we, when we put a story out, we want the most clicks and the media gets things wrong because we're telling them the wrong things. It's very common to see law enforcement talking about rescue operations where they're doing this and that law enforcement is not rescuing anybody. Like I, I hate to break the news to, to my fellow cops. You are not rescuing trafficking victims. Trafficking victims are ultimately being rescued by themselves. That's how that works. And, and hopefully a lot of hard work from, from NGOs behind them. So I think that's one thing it gets wrong. I think we chase a lot of statistics kind of going back to this is a hidden crime, right? And we don't know what the actual scope is, but we want to push out to the media all those uh, statistics. I think when it comes to media, they could probably spend a little bit more time vetting what the law enforcement or even the non-governmental organizations are telling them because it is their responsibility to put out accurate information. I think when things are sensationalized, we tend to have a little bit of a problem. You see that a lot when we have the very large scale operations that say go out and, and you'll see, you know, certain states will release. Well, we this week did a trafficking operation. We rescued 100 victims of trafficking. They're not spending much time vetting out what does rescue actually mean and what does victim of human trafficking actually mean? Because what it a lot of times what law enforcement is doing is meeting, say, a trafficking victim, giving them the pamphlets and the services and then disappearing. 
or arresting the victim of human trafficking. It's very, very common for victims to be arrested or they're meeting with people that would be viewed as consensual sex workers and giving them outreach and calling that a, vic a victim of human trafficking. And that's not a victim of human trafficking. I mean, it just, it's not. So while they're at risk and, and, you know, obviously there's some things that are happening there, it's not the same. And I think not digging into definition and what are we calling, you know, a spade's a spade, right? So when we're, when we're inaccurately calling things, it looks really big in the news. And then when that hits the news, it gets tons of clicks. So that's perpetuating it. Law enforcement administration then is generally like, wow, we did great. We need another one and another one and another one, and another one. And they're causing a lot of harm versus I had a meeting one time with somebody in the FBI and he made the comment. He said, look, uh, we've been inaccurately reporting this. And this year it's changing and our numbers are going to be extremely low compared to what they've been. And we're going to have to answer for that. And, but I think that was extremely responsible of them to do that. So just vetting everything out as media, I think is the biggest thing. Vetting, uh, and you're right, as law enforcement, as a prosecutor, we have to hold ourselves accountable when we, we put out yeah. information as well. And I can tell you from these cases, one of the things that you mentioned really struck with me, right? We don't rescue victims, they rescue themselves, or I should say with a lot of assistance from our victim service providers. Absolutely. I could tell you if I didn't have amazing NGOs and victim service providers, I would not have that survivor in court by the time it comes to trial, you know, a year later. Yeah, same. And that's one thing I try to even tell the cops is that if you don't have a happy, healthy survivor, the prosecution is going to have to be fighting uphill, you know, because you believe that you rescued somebody because you put a trafficker in jail and provided nothing else for. Absolutely. We are never going to fix the trafficking issue if we are not all working together. And that includes law enforcement, victim service providers, NGO, and education. We need to make sure that we are addressing these vulnerabilities early and working together so that individuals who are marginalized have choices. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about educating on the problem and educating these vulnerabilities, yeah. I think we need to talk about the information that we're sharing and what's accurate and what's not. So let's break down some of the stats and numbers and accountability. For years, I have attended trainings on human trafficking, and I've presented numerous trainings to the community on trafficking. I have repeated all kinds of statistics. Me too. <laughs> Average age a person enters into sex trafficking, we've been told 12 to 14 years. I've been taught and have repeated the average length of time a person's in the business, seven years, or how many trafficked individuals are runaways and other statistics like that. Given that trafficking is a hidden crime, as you mentioned earlier, and that we've only truly begun investigating the tip of the iceberg, how accurate are these statistics? Not very. You know, I've, I, it's kind of become my little conquest to bring light to the fact that the, the stats are inaccurate. Because it, to me, as long as we're pushing inaccurate stats out, we're educating um, many different people, right? We're educating other law enforcement, we're educating the public. And the harm with educating the public on what trafficking looks like when it doesn't is that ultimately, especially with you being a prosecutor and me being in law enforcement, those people are sitting on our juries, you know, and I don't want them to be having preconceived notion because they went to a community training. So, you know, you brought up the, the average age of entry being 12 to 14. That number is, is not an accurate 
statistic. And what that actually comes from is a 1999 and 2001 study that was done by the University of Pennsylvania that is so outdated, it actually discusses child prostitutes, which we know is not even a term. It's not even a thing anymore. But that study was of children that were involved in commercial sex in the US, Canada, and Mexico. The problem with that is if we only do a study of children, our average age of entry will always be only children. That's you, you can't get past that. So when we look at, at data from Polaris, and, and I can also caution this number because it is, it's self-reported, right? I mean, this is self-reported numbers to Polaris. The average age of entry on sex trafficking was 18, and the average age of labor trafficking was 25 when they were introduced to their trafficking. There was a study that was done by the Avery Center for Research and Services in Colorado, and I believe when they interviewed all of their survivors, the average age of entry was 19 years old. So there's a lot more indication that it's much older, but I think a lot of times non-governmental organizations don't like to admit that because when we look at funding, People want to throw money at the 12 to 14 year old that's being trafficked and less towards the 18 and 19 year old. So it really creates a weird environment there. So what are some of the problems or harm that comes with the fact that we've all been learning these same stats for years and that those of us who work in this field, we're repeating them. What, what's the harm that comes with this? Well, I mean, for one, it's, it's inaccuracies, right? And, and there's a few harms. So uh, another one of the one that's widely used is uh, the average life expectancy of somebody involved in human trafficking is seven years. The furthest that can can be cited back to is an FBI white paper. That was it. Um, It was an FBI bulletin that was put out. And that FBI bulletin is no longer, you can no longer find that on the internet. But there was an FBI spokesman that said that that was determined to be from a particular case the FBI had. So that average, that average life expectancy was literally based off of a single case that the FBI had. The harm in that is kind of multifaceted. So say you have a, a person who was trafficked for 10 years and going back to the, to the jury perspective or the judge and jury perspective, you should have been deceased within seven. Therefore, for many years, you probably weren't trafficked because this is what trafficking looks like. When we look at average age of entry, what happens when all we're focused on are 12 to 14 year olds. And then we set somebody in front of you and go, this woman was trafficked at 35. We start going, what, 12 to 14, you should have been being trafficked. Therefore, at 35, you were probably a consensual sex worker because the trafficking should have been occurring back 20 to 14 or 12 to 14 years old. And I think that that's something that's really harmful for not only the judges and juries, but it's harmful for our survivors and it's harmful for our victims because if they're being exploited and they're looking and being told this is what trafficking is and they don't fit within that mold, then you run the risk of them being like, well, I'm not a trafficking victim. That's not me. I don't look like that. Or when they do have the courage to finally tell their stories, people tend to disbelieve because we have this preconceived notion of what it should look like. And when it doesn't, we just tend to kind of push our hands and and walk away. These preconceived notions or ideas of trafficking can come in a lot of forms based on what we've been taught. And we expect our survivors to be mainly young people. Yeah. Also, we expect that a lot of times our survivors are going to be runaways or foster children. Yep. And this is based on that information you were talking about that's been repeated for years. As you were saying, this can lead to misunderstandings. 
between a consensual commercial sex trade worker and a trafficked victim. These misunderstandings or preconceived notions can lead to victims slipping through the cracks or investigators, quite frankly, looking for the wrong things. When you are doing trainings for fellow law enforcement or say we're presenting a case to a jury, what are some of the things that you can highlight that can show the difference between a consensual commercial interaction as opposed to a person who is being trafficked? Yeah, and that's always an interesting thing for me because people ask, like, how do I determine? And as law enforcement, one of the things I try to train on is I am not the misdemeanor sex crime or sex police. Like, I'm, I am not here for prostitution. I'm here for human trafficking, period. So we're looking for, for indicators of trafficking before we even begin a, to send a text message to try to set anything up. I think a lot of the things that we look for, for one, is if I can identify who your finances are going to, like that's going to be huge, which is really, really easy to do. I love cash apps. Uh, you know, cash app has been phenomenal to, to deal with. I love getting cases with cash app because I can see exactly where that money's going and it goes there quick. The promoting of the prostitution. So who's actually setting all this up? If I'm able to, to show that this particular person is paying for sex ads, is taking your pictures, is one of the biggest ones we've seen with the explosion of OnlyFans is because pimps like being front and center of the show, they will very oftentimes, if you will subscribe to that OnlyFans account, that's where we exploit them the most because they're on all the videos, they show their face, they, you know, they get to be the star. So if we're showing that consistent engagement with that particular person, that particular person's posting ads, IP addresses are coming back to that particular person and we're able to identify the money going back to them, then, you know, we move forward on our, our cases. And, and the beauty of a lot of that is we're using technology, data, and, and intel to build victimless cases, right? So we don't have to have a victim take the stand. When it comes to identification of a consensual sex worker or what we would view as, I hate that term, but what we would view as a consensual sex worker, you know, once we've identified the fact that there's likely no trafficker, we kind of keep moving. You know, we're out trying to find trafficking victims. So I circle back a lot with consensual sex workers because one thing I found is the only person who hates traffickers more than cops are consensual sex workers. So, you know, I routinely pay them as CIs and, and they'll very regularly call and be like, hey, there's something going down at room, you know, 130 of this hotel, like you probably need to start checking on it. Um, and they become some of my best, not only informants, but also people to help me understand as different nuances are taking place within the trafficking community, what they mean. They're at, at times very good to, to, to work with. Absolutely. I think uh, one of the things that as you talk about the indicators that you look for, that for me, it rings kind of that bell for that power and control dynamic, yeah. that, that wheel that we see so often with intimate partner violence and sexual assault, that same kind of power and control dynamic exists within that trafficking relationship to use another terrible word to describe it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, I try to tell part of the issue with investigators is we look at prostitution as the offense that we're investigating. And I always tell them you're investigating domestic violence and sexual assault. You are literally investigating sexual assault. There's just a hundred dollar bill that's, you know, exchanged within this. So quit with the prostitution and understand, just like you said, the power and control dynamics of sexual assault and domestic violence. And that's when you get it. You've kind of woken us up a little bit to 
a lot of stuff we've gotten wrong over the years with regard to statistics and the fact that we miss a lot because we're looking for certain people that fit the mold we've talked about for years and that what we should really be looking for are the vulnerabilities. So those who are most vulnerable in our community or marginalized in ways that, although they, they may have that choice, as you indicated, how much of a choice is it really? So if you could pick one thing that communities should be working on to help reduce trafficking and the vulnerabilities that lead to trafficking, what would it be? Gosh. Um... And if you need more than one, I can give you up to three, but no more than that. Okay, I got to have a few here, I think. Um, I, I think one is we have to generally invest in children. And I say that because if we can keep the next generation of girls and boys to not have financial vulnerability, to not be in a position where they are not able to have sustainable incomes as they get older, or, you know, just really the economic empowerment, I think is the biggest. And, and I don't know how we could ever accomplish that. I just think that that would be the biggest thing to stop trafficking. I think the other one would be, so I recently, I'm not going to name the city. I last week was in a, another state and I had posted a sex ad online and the response was overwhelming. I mean, I was getting messages. I, th I, I think in three hours, I had something like 60 different people messaging. And I always like to lead in with, based on this, I can show you, you very clearly have a human trafficking problem. And naturally they fall in and they're like, yeah, this is human trafficking is running rampant. And I'm like, no, you have a sex buying problem. That's what you have. You don't have a human trafficking problem. So when we look at that, I think what the other most important thing that we could do is teach, and I'll say boys and men, because that's the primary you know, group of buyers, teach boys and men, A, accountability for each other, then B, you know, what somebody's worth is. And if you put a dollar amount on a human being's body, that is just completely unacceptable. So taking our largest group of victims, which in sex trafficking is generally women and teaching them very young, the value there and, and stopping any of those vulnerabilities. And then on the flip side, getting boys and men to quit buying sex, I think would stop trafficking, you know, pretty quick. As a mom of three boys, I have no problem with you calling out the boys and men. <laughs> I tell my boys all the time that change starts with them. Yeah, yeah. And quite frankly, you nailed it. Human trafficking will end when we can all give human beings simple respect and value. But that is all the time we have for today. I encourage everyone to follow Joe on social media at josephscaramucci.ht on Facebook and Joseph Scaramucci on LinkedIn. And we'll have the links to both social media pages in the podcast notes. Joe is constantly updating his feed with information you need to know about human trafficking and even more importantly, the information we need to stop repeating. Joe, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your knowledge. But before we sign off, the floor is yours for any final thoughts or information you would like people to share for Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Yeah, I just think the biggest thing is honestly taking the time to dig, whether it be on numbers and statistics. If, if you're getting these numbers and statistics, take the time to dig into where they actually come from. You would find more often than not, 
they really don't come from anything meaningful. I think the other would be dig when you're talking about organizations. Just because it's flashy, just because it's pretty doesn't mean they're giving you the right information or that they're taking your money and doing what they say with it. So taking time to dig into 990s, taking time to dig into what their actual output per year is, you know, what are they actually accomplishing? And yeah, I mean, really just take the time to vet everything and everybody. All right. So I'm not going to let you go just yet. You raised a really important point about organizations that are helping in the fight against human trafficking. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. When we are looking at service providers or other community organizations that we should support, NICMIC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children being one of my favorites, you've already mentioned Polaris, but what other organizations would you suggest for people who are really wanting to support survivors and make a difference in this fight against human trafficking? You know, I think some of the most important that are coming along right now would be organizations that focus on clemency with victims who have been arrested. So I think that being able to clear their records, whether it be if you are an attorney or if you have the money to help support those organizations, because we're, we're really dealing with a, a generation of survivors of trafficking right now that just have a hard time finding good employment because they were criminalized for victimization. So I think ones like that, I think organizations that are boots on the ground providing direct services are huge. And one of the ones that tends to be overlooked and I think is very, very important are organizations. There's one as an example called Atlanta Redemption Inc. that are helping survivors reduce or or remove tattoos that are love them. Reminders of their trafficking that they have to look at every day. So just things like that, that really can change the mental health of a survivor and the financial health of the survivor are are really important and, and really overlooked because we get caught up in the whole rescue term, like organizations do that. And, and I think that long-term we have to focus on mental health and, and financial health as well as physical health. You just raised so many wonderful points. In my state, it was just a few years ago that victims of trafficking were permitted to expunge prior criminal convictions that had arisen from their trafficking situation. But there is still more work to do on that front. All across the country right now, there is legislation regarding expungement or clemency of prior convictions for trafficking survivors. So I encourage everyone to check out their local legislation on those issues and write letters in support. Atlanta Redemption Inc. is one of my favorites. I follow their social media, and it just fills me with joy to see a beautiful piece of art replace a branding tattoo or just a painful reminder of a survivor's trafficking history. And I will certainly include the link for them as well in the podcast notes. Joe, thank you again for joining us. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. You can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to human trafficking or not having the right response when it comes to educating our young people. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much.